0: All right, Colossians chapter number one. We're going to begin reading in verse 15. We're going to read down to the uh, end of the chapter. Uh, Paul, of course, is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He, He mentioned him back in verse 13 when he said that God has delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And that begins a discourse of statements about Jesus Christ, his place in the plan of God. So speaking of Christ in verse 15, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I Paul am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect, In Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, I think it would behoove us to take a moment and consider who the opposition was that Paul was addressing at the church of Colossae. Uh, The majority of the New Testament epistles, the church epistles that Paul wrote, he wrote to address some doctrinal error. And even in the early infant days of the New Testament church, Uh, There was heresy and error that was taking root and bearing fruit in seeking to corrupt and to derail and to detour the work of God that was going on in that region. Uh, There are a a myriad of different flavors and and sects of of, uh, heresy and of uh, cultish doctrine. But the one in particular that Paul is uh, battling at the church at Colossae is what's known as Gnosticism. Now, we're familiar with a term similar to that, and it's the word agnostic. Uh, when you put A in front of anything, that typically negates it. For instance, an atheist is the opposite of a theist. theist is someone that believes in a god. An atheist is someone that believes in no god. Well, the term agnostic means no knowledge. Uh, that uh, suffix, or uh, gnostic, or gnostis, uh, denotes the idea of, of study, of science, of learning, uh, of academic pursuit. And the term agnostic means no knowledge. And, of course, an agnostic would be someone that would tell you, I don't know whether there's a God or not. Well, Gnosticism was prevalent, which is not agnosticism, but in some ways the opposite of it. Gnosticism was a claim not to have no knowledge, but rather to have more knowledge. It was a group of uh, mystics in the early New Testament church that claimed that they had some special knowledge about God. Now, you'll find that Gnosticism was really at the heart of what Paul was dealing with in his letter to the church at Ephesus. It was also what John was dealing with in the epistle of 1 John. And this uh, Gnostic religion and cult and heresy was very, very dominant as far as being sort of the counterbalance and the opposition to the truth that the apostles were delivering to the church during the early New Testament times. Gnosticism was basically marked by a handful of heresies and of errors. Uh, For instance, Gnostics believed that they uh, did not commit any sin. In fact, they believed that sin in and of itself was... was something that was subjective, it was relative, it wasn't something that was absolute, but it was something that was uh, merely relative to a person's sensibilities. That idea is prevalent today in the idea that there's no right and no wrong, it's just whatever you think is right, whatever you think is wrong. That's an old lie that the devil's been telling since the beginning of time, and the Gnostics preach that. Part of the reason John was very bold in declaring that if any man say he has no sin, he's a liar, doesn't walk in the truth. He was addressing that heresy of Gnosticism. Also, a Gnostic uh, would have been someone that believed that God was completely uninterested in the material. Of course, the Bible is clear that God is a spirit. Uh, Christ made the statement that uh, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. He said that in Luke chapter number 24 when speaking to his disciples. But a Gnostic would claim that everything material is evil and that everything spiritual is good. And uh, therefore, they would have been very much in keeping with like the, uh, the, the Stoics in the day of Paul. People that, that were um, given to asceticism, the idea that any sort of pleasure, indulgence of, uh, of desire in any way is inherently evil. Anything material is evil. Anything that, that our senses communicate with is evil. And in doing that, in many ways, what they did was created this concept of God that he was not interested in the world around us. So that's one of the things Paul is dealing with addressing as well. Of course, the Gnostic would have believed that they had extra scriptural revelation from God. Just another reason John was very bold in declaring that they had no need that any man teach them. That self-same anointing would teach them. He wasn't saying that it's wrong to sit under the teaching of the Word of God. If we believed that, we'd be sitting at home watching Matlock tonight. Amen? So uh, it's not that it's wrong, but what he's saying is this. When he uses the term teaching... He's not using it in the sense of educating someone, but rather revealing something, something that cannot be known except by revelation. And what he's saying is this. They don't have any special knowledge that you don't have. Uh, They, you know, the the Lord's given us the Bible. If we're saved by the grace of God, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's given us the church, which is the pillar and ground of truth. We all are given that same amount of revelation. It's just a question of whether we uh, will walk in it or not. So that was one of the Gnostic ideas. Another Gnostic idea, and we're going to jump into our text, be patient with me. Another Gnostic idea was that Jesus was not God, that he wasn't the son of God, but rather that he was either in the middle or at the very lower end of a spectrum of angelic beings. They called these beings emanations, emanations from God. They used the term eon uh, is a word that you might be familiar with. So they would have rejected the deity of Christ. And they would have said he was a good teacher. Maybe he was even elevated to the point of being an angelic being. But he wasn't even one of the top angels. He was at the lower spectrum of angelic beings. Now you might say, well, preacher, why do I need to know all that? There ain't any Gnostics running around that I know of. Well, there might be more than you realize. But beyond that, it is is imperative to understanding why Paul says what he says in the letter to the church at Colossae. He's addressing these heresies that were beginning to infect the early New Testament church. And in chapter number two, we're going to deal more directly with some of them. But it informs why he said what he said about Jesus Christ. Now, the very uh, main principle, the chief issue that is at stake in, uh, in, in the book of Colossians, the main issue is the truth about Christ and his church. And in these next three chapters or the end of chapter one I and mean, chapter two and chapter three, Paul deals at length with Christ, who he is, what he's done, where he occupies, uh, the place he occupies in, in the place of God's plan of redemption and, and God's economy and what the church is and what the church means. So there are three basic truths that he deals with in the verses that we've read. In verses 15 through 19, he declares boldly, unapologetically, the deity of Christ. Verses 20, 21 and 22, he lays before them the death of Christ. What that means. See, for a person that believes they don't ever sin, they have no interest in the death of Christ. But if we accept by scriptural authority the death of Christ, that he came as Savior to die for our sins, then we must, by then of that, accept that we are sinners. We have no part in the Savior except we'll acknowledge that we are sinners. So this speaks directly to the heart of one of the Gnostic lies. And then finally, verses 23 through 29, he speaks of the demands of Christ. That Christianity is not just an abstract theoretical uh, concept, but that it speaks to our very existence, that it arrests our actions and our daily life and our energy, and it commands and constrains us to respond to these great truths that Paul has set forth. So look with me for a moment at verses 15 through 19. And I want you to notice what Paul says about the deity of Christ. He makes some big, big, bold statements. Look at verse 15. He says about Jesus Christ that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. In speaking of the deity of Christ, the first thing Paul says is that in Christ we have the person of God revealed to us. As we already said, when Christ was speaking to the woman at the well in John 4.24, He said that God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That means this, that God is not uh, physical, He's not human, He's not tangible, He is not visible. But Christ says later on in Luke 24.39, that a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. So in other words, Christ says this, that God is a spirit. He is eternal. He is invisible. But me, you can see me. You can reach out, feel the nail prints. You can reach out, feel where the spear thrusts into my side. Now, the key to reconciling those two truths is to understand what he told Philip in John 14. Philip said, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Christ makes revelation concerning His chief function and purpose in walking amongst men. He says, Philip, have, you been, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In another place, Christ said that no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father that was in His bosom has declared Him unto you. One of the chief purposes of Christ in walking amongst men and in His incarnation, was that God might be manifest to humanity. It's interesting that Paul uses the term image, who is the image of the invisible God. That same word is used actually in Romans 1.23, and it's used speaking of pagan idols, that they had taken the image of the invisible God and made it like unto the image, or had taken the invisible God, and, and made an image of Him like unto the image of corruptible man. This is a beautiful illustration of what the Incarnation did. When you consider the paganism and the idolatry that existed in Paul's day. In Paul's day, of course, uh, the the Greek theologians and philosophers still had a chief place in public thought. And the Romans, of course, had their own set of deities. In fact, the Roman deities and the Greek deities were basically just uh, images one of another with different names. Uh, in fact, whenever Paul is, I believe at Ephesus, I might have that wrong, uh, but when he's in one of these idolatrous cities and him and uh, and uh, Apollos begin to speak, you, you're going to check me out on that, I might have a few details mixed up, but they when they hear him speak, they assume that he must be a god sent down from heaven. And uh, they attribute deities to both him and his companions with him. And actually Luke gives the name of those gods both in Greek and in Roman. Because the Roman gods and the Greek gods were basically a matched pair and a match set. Here's what the Greeks and the Romans did. They looked at fallen man and they drew lines out from their attributes out into eternity and created gods out of it. So what you had in the Greek gods was basically a, a magnified, an elevated, an expanded version of mankind's fallen condition. So you'd have gods of war and gods of greed and gods of lust. And what they wound up being was bigger and badder versions of human beings. Now what's fascinating about that, many of these gods created before Christ walked amongst men, is it's almost as though they got something right in the, in the mechanism, they just missed it on the means. Because what God did when He sought to reveal Himself to humanity is He took, robed Himself in flesh in the person of His Son and He walked amongst men and He was 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 12 months out of the year, for 3 and a half years, He was a walking illustration of who and what God is. He was not just a representation of God, but he was God represented upon earth. He was God walking amongst men. So that if you look at the person and character and behavior and attributes of Christ and draw a line out into eternity, you have an image of the person and character and attributes of God. Christ walking amongst men was not just a good man. But it was, in fact, God walking amongst men. One commentator said this, that Christ gives visible expression of the invisible God. So we see that he is the image of the invisible God. But think with me for a moment about the implications of the incarnate God. Now, notice what he says. He says he's the image of the invisible God. Then he makes this statement. He is the firstborn of every creature. A lot of bad doctrine has started in that statement, that phrase right there, from a misunderstanding of that term firstborn. Now, when you and I think of the term firstborn, we think of someone that is created, someone that is birthed, someone that was not here one day but is born into this world, is here another day. We think of a created being. But the term firstborn in your Bible, you know, the Gentiles reading this might have grappled with it, but the Jews would have known exactly what Paul was saying. Because the term firstborn in the Old Testament, that is an Old Testament Jewish term, did not always denote the person that was born first. It was a title of rank and it was a title of prominence in a family. Uh, for instance, uh, think about Isaac. He was the second-born over Ishmael, but he was chosen to be the firstborn. He was given the inheritance. He was given the promises. He was given the place in the family. Being the firstborn in a family, uh, it included three things, three privileges, basically. One, it included property. Uh, the firstborn would be given a double portion. So, in other words, if, if you had, you know, ten sons, the first son would be given two tenths and everybody else would be given one eighth. The firstborn was given a double portion of the property. Second, they would have a special place as the priest of the family, the high priest over the family. Uh, They were to take over the roles of the patriarch, uh, and it was their responsibility to function as the high priest for the family before the Levitical priesthood was instituted. And thirdly, they had a place in what we call the progenitorship. So ever since the Garden of Eden, God had had, uh, given the prophecy that there would be a Messiah that would be born. And as families do when they have children, that lineage, when you got more than one children, it's got to go one direction or another. If you have two sons, only one of them is going to be the ancestor of the Messiah. And the firstborn denoted whichever one God would choose to be the progenitor of the Messiah, to be in the ancestry of the Messiah. So, for instance, Isaac is chosen as the firstborn over Ishmael. Jacob is chosen as the firstborn over Esau. And this spiritual principle is illustrated in the book of Romans when we're revealed. uh, It's revealed to us that the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, is chosen and given preeminence in the plan of God over the first Adam, which is Adam that was in the garden. So this biblical principle of being the firstborn doesn't always mean you were born first. Consider Jacob's sons. Reuben was the firstborn son of, of Jacob, born first. Uh, Reuben was the first uh, child ever produced from Jacob's loins. But Reuben was not given the place of the quote-unquote firstborn in the family. In fact, the privileges of being firstborn were split amongst his brothers. Uh, Joseph was given his property. And from Joseph, it was given not just to Joseph, but it was passed on to Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why the Bible talks about the half-tribe of Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's because Joseph was given a double Portion. And that double portion then passed on to his sons. Judah was placed in the progenitorship of the Messiah. Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And Levi, in course, eventually would be blessed with the priesthood. That's why we have a book called Leviticus. And that's why we talk about the Levitical priests and uh, the Levitical priesthood. So even though Reuben was born first, he was not the firstborn. This phrase does not suggest to us that Christ was a created being. In fact, we know it can't mean that because the very next phrase says this, for by him were all things created. So how could he, if he was a created being, create all things? Would he not have to be part of the all things that would have had to have been created? So it's not saying that he was a created being, but rather it is declaring to us that by him being the source and the activator of creation, God has given him a special place of promise. He's been, for instance, given the property. All things were created by him and for him. Everything he created still belongs to him. He has given not just the progenitorship, but now listen, this is a big word, the promogenitorship. In other words, he is the one that the progenitors were progenitors of. He is the Messiah. He's not just in the line of the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And he's given the place of primacy in the plan of redemption. And of course, the priesthood, he functions as man's high priest unto God. The fact that God walked amongst men suggests to us the fact that God rode himself in flesh and walked amongst us in the person of Jesus Christ suggests to us a great place of prominence that Christ, he's not just part of an order of angels. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a preacher. He is not simply a martyr. That Jesus Christ is in fact God walking amongst men and that he is owed our complete and total devotion and worship and allegiance. He speaks that the person of God is revealed. Look at verse 16. We find that the power of God is revealed. The Bible says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Paul makes three statements in in speaking about the power of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. First, he proclaims boldly that Jesus Christ created the universe. He created the universe. Uh, one of the things, and I wish I had time to dive into it. I really don't have time, and I'll admit that to you, but uh, science still has yet to figure out. They claim that the world was created by a big bang, right? But they still can't find any answers in their mind of what made the big bang go bang. The The topic of origins is something that science will never be able to speak upon. It's not in the purview of what science does. Science has the ability to observe what is, and from that to merely speculate on what was and what might possibly be. But it is not within the purview of science to speak on what happened. And the fact of the matter is, if we want to know how the universe was created, there's only one source we can go to. There's only one person. How would you find out? If you wanted to know something that happened and find the truth out of it, you'd have to go to somebody that was there and could tell you. Well, the fact of the matter is the Bible has given us the revealed truth about who was there and who can tell us. It's not science. It's not Darwin. It's not something that can be understood by research or reason, but only by revelation and that by the person of Jesus Christ. He created all things. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ created the universe. Not only that, but Jesus Christ claims the universe. It says not only were all things created by him that are in heaven, that are in earth, but it says uh, things, uh, it describes him as uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. He says all these things were created by him and for him. The commentator was describing the scene in Revelation 4 and 5. I thought this was, I, I, and I can't quote it to you, I can't say it like he said it, but man, it just gripped my soul, it stirred me when I was listening to it of John there and. Uh, the heavenly throne room. And around him are all these angels and all of these elders and these beasts and they're all around the throne of God. All of a sudden an angel stands forth with a, with a scroll with seven seals on it and asks this question, says, who's worthy to take this seal? Who's worthy to open this book? And John said that he looked around the room and no one stepped forward. No one was bold enough. It wasn't a question of who was willing. It was a question of who was willing there would have been a stampede. But it was a question of who was worthy. And down through the index of every human being that has ever lived, there was no one that could stand forth. There was no one worth. John says, then all of a sudden he saw a lamb step forth as it had been slain. But now it's not slain. It's standing and reach out and nail pierced hands and take the book unto himself. He and he alone was worthy to open the seals of judgment upon creation. You know why? Because he was the one that had created This world is, it belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his by right of creation because he did create it. It's his by right of Calvary because he died that he might purchase it. And it's his by right of conquest because one of these days he's coming back to reign as king of kings and as lord of lords and lord of glory. All the things in this world, uh, though mankind may enjoy them, may benefit from them. Kingdoms may rise and fall. Emperors may be elevated and deposed. And exiled, But at the end of the day, every single thing that we ever interact with, every piece of grass that we step upon, every drop of water that we ever come into contact with, every bit of it belongs to Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because He created. Then look at verse 17. It's revealed to us that Jesus Christ controls the universe. It says, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Whenever it says he is before all things, I think that's interesting. It doesn't say he was before all things. It says he is before all things. There was a day when Christ looked at the scoffers that were gathered around him and said this, Before Abraham was, I am. And that was a statement not of chronology, but it was a statement of divinity. He was saying, I am the all-eternal God, always existent, always present. What he was saying is this, that Those moments when Abraham trudged up Moriah's hill with his son in tow, with the knife in his hand. I'm as present in that moment right now as I am in the moment whenever the new Jerusalem sits down upon this earth. I'm present in every single moment. I am that I am was the one that spoke to Moses and that I am is Jesus Christ. Not he he was before all things. He is before all things. This is not a statement of chronology, but a statement of position. He's saying, before there's anything else, I come first. And here's why. Because by me, all things consist. The word means cohere. It means to hold together. And again, I wish I had the time and the words and the, and the uh, oratory to be able to walk through the same way that many preachers and commentators have. But all throughout this universe, there are planets and stars hurling on their courses. With the, with the consistency and the dependability such that we can predict decades in advance when the next meteor shower is going to come or when the next comet is going to float by. Who makes all those things behave the way they do? The Bible says, by Him all things cohere, hold together. By Him all things consist. What is it that holds earth on this perfect course to the sun so much so that it's not so hot that we burn up or so cold that we freeze to death, even though literally a matter of a mile or two one way or the other would make the difference. Who does that? It's Jesus Christ. This is the person that we're talking about. He speaks to the person of God revealed, the power of God revealed, and then he reveals to us the purposes of God. Verse number 18, the Bible says this, And he is the head of the body. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence for it pleased the father that in him should all fullness dwell. We have in these few verses what God's overarching plan is for his creation. And essentially his plan is this, that all things might end with glory being given unto Jesus Christ. Notice who Christ is in these purposes of God. The Bible teaches here that he heads a new body and is speaking about the church. Uh, the church is given uh, three main illustrations in the New Testament. Write these down if you are taking notes. It's described as a building to us, as a building, uh, that it is a spiritual house, a house not made with hands. And you and I, we are as lively stones that have been mined out of the mire of this world and have been polished and have been changed and have been hewn into the image of Christ. And Christ is the foundation. And in this house, every stone has its proper place, but all of them are resting on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It's also described as a bride that is adorned, waiting for the bridegroom to come, waiting for the day when... Uh, She'll be taken away and she's viewed as spotless, as without spot, without blemish, without blame, without reproof, not because of who she is, but because she has been adorned in white wedding garments, which are the righteousness of Christ. And then here we're reminded that the church is illustrated to us as a body, as a body. And in this body, Christ is the head. We each individually are members. Some members are more visible and prominent than others, but every member has its place. If you don't believe that, let me cut your pinky toe off. Amen? Every member has its place in the body. They're all knit together, joined together, and they all share in the same life. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that blood pumps through this body, and you know what it does? Blood does this continually in your body. It cleanses. It carries away impurities. And that's the way that the church is described in this passage. We are a body. And in this body, the Bible says, He, Jesus Christ, is the head. Now listen, sometimes I'm an independent Baptist. I believe in the autonomy of a local church. I believe it's a scriptural, biblical principle. Sometimes people may think that preachers like me, we just spend too much time majoring on it. And we're divisive and don't know why it's such a big deal. This right here, this passage, is why it's such a big deal. Because who would be so bold as to dare to take the headship from Jesus Christ? No denominational leader, no pastor, no deacon, no teacher, no preeminent person in the church has any right to try to wrestle from Christ his proper place as the true and thorough head of the body of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, Paul uses the term he and there's an emphasis placed on it. He, he's saying he, the one that created all things. The one that holds the stars in their course. The one that spoke everything into existence. The one that was there before there was anything there to be there. He, that person, the God of glory, the creator of all things, the thrice holy God. He is the head of the church. He's again emphasizing to these Christians under Gnostic assault that Jesus Christ was not some uh, some subservient lower tier angel. But that, in fact, he is the head of creation and he is the head of the church. He is the lawgiver in creation. He is the life giver in redemption. He is the head of the body. Not only does he head a new body, but he heads a new beginning. Says he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, that term firstborn that's used there is used in a very significant way. It's not just saying born first from the dead, but it's saying the firstborn from the dead. But two thoughts are at the prominent role here. One, He originated life. He is the beginning. Before Him, there was nothing. God has the proprietary authority and ownership over the ability to grant life. This was illustrated even in creation. God took clay, molded it together, made a man. But until He breathed life into that man... The man did not become a living soul. God and God alone has that authority and that ability. It's interesting, when the uh, plagues were placed upon Egypt, there was a showdown between uh, Moses and Aaron and between the magicians of Pharaoh. And you've heard this story no doubt many times. But how that everything that Moses and Aaron would do, every miracle that they would perform, that the magicians would perform the same miracle. But there was one miracle that they could not Perform And that was the turning of dust into life. Why is that? Well, they had a form of power, but, or a form of godliness. They could, they could act like God. They could try to portray themselves like God. But they denied the power thereof. What is the power that proprietarily belongs to God and God alone? The ability to take and bring life out of nothing. Only God can do that. Man can observe life. Man can destroy life. But man has no capacity to create life. I think even the most simple and most expressive example of mankind rearing up life, and that's farming, agriculture, that man would toil and labor that he might bring something living out of the ground. Why is it that the ground has life-giving properties? It was because in eons past, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep and gave a life-giving property the earth that we walk upon. All of this has come from God. He originated life, but notice that he overcame death. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, that's an interesting statement. In fact, it's interesting because if we take the term firstborn to mean the first that ever this happened to, then we find out that that's not true. In fact, there are six people raised from the dead uh, before Christ was raised from the dead. Seven, if you count Jonah, and I probably would count Jonah. Uh, But in your Bible, there were six people that were raised from the dead before Christ was ever raised from the dead. But Paul reveals to us in that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that there was something different about Christ's resurrection. In fact, Paul says there are two types of bodies. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. Everybody that was ever raised prior the Christ's resurrection was raised with a natural body. The body they went into the grave with was the body they came out of the grave with. And they rose, but they rose to die again. They did not live on indefinitely. They were not raised spiritually changed, spiritually altered of spiritual prominence and of spiritual substance the way that Christ was when He rose Himself from the grave. And so when it speaks of the firstborn, It's speaking of Him being, the term is what we get our word prototype from. He's the prototype. His resurrection sets the pattern for the resurrection that God has planned for those that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. When God raises us from the dead, He won't be raising us for us to die again, but He'll be raising us for us to die no more. (coughs) A beautiful illustration of this is the Old Testament saints in Matthew 25 that were raised up with Christ when He was raised From the grave and uh, went to heaven with him, very likely to be presented as a wave offering uh, in keeping with the Old Testament feast of the first fruits. When the first fruits came in, they were to take a sampling of the first fruits and bring it to the high priest and to wave it before God and to give it to the priest as an example that the first of their harvest belonged to God. And these Old Testament saints no doubt were took to heaven as a sort of wave offering before the Lord. Those Old Testament saints we have reason to believe, died no more. They went into glory. They're right now in the presence of God. And so when it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, what it's saying is this, that he, in point in fact, overcame death. He thwarted death's design. He broke his crown. He took his scepter. He, he, he robbed him of his power, of his authority. And he offers that power, he offers that experience, he offers that life to those that believe upon him, those that put their faith in him. So who is Christ? He's the head. Well, where is Christ in all of this? Paul closes this verse by saying that in all things he might have the preeminence. Preeminence. You'll only find this verse or this word one other time in your Bible. And it's when uh, John speaks about a man by the name of Diotrephes. And says that Diotrephes loveth to have the preeminence in church. And uh, so much so, John says that he would not even read this letter before you. In other words, Diotrephes was saying, My word is the only word in the church. And John has no place. And no other apostle has any place. I'm the absolute authority. No one else. Paul, and very likely before John ever wrote that, Paul wrote this. But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit would use that same word to say that's what Christ ought to be. He is in the economy of God, given the premises. Meaning, he's not just given a place, he's not just given prominence, he's given premise. He's before all things. He's not just the one and all, he's the one and only. He is the one to whom we look. Now remember how this must have, have sank the hearts and hopes of these Gnostic Cult leaders that sought to ensnare this little group of believers. Here's Paul boldly under Holy Ghost inspiration, reminding them that Christ is not just some lower tier angel. He is, in fact, all that matters. He is the preeminent one in the economy of God's plan. We see in this passage that he is preeminent. And let me just pause and ask you this. What is he in your life? I, my intention is not to give a bunch of application for these verses, but to give the exposition of. But let me just ask you: for, his, for some folks, he's given Christ has given a place in their life; they believe on him, they're saved, they would say they're a Christian. But that's about it. Other folks, he's given prominence in their life; uh, they try to make somewhat of a big deal out of him. They maybe even give him the the authorship and authority and governance over many decisions. But there are areas of their life that they fenced off. And they're, they're, they're happy for Christ to make most of the decisions, but some of the decisions they want to keep to themselves. And then there's a few that give them the preeminence. And they say, Lord, every bit of me belongs to you. I wonder where you and I are at in that thought tonight. Look at verse 19. We see in this passage what Christ is in these verses. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. The term fullness used here means plenitude, the plentifulness of God, dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. The term that's used for dwell means to be permanently at home in somebody. And again, all of this is speaking directly against these heresies that the Gnostics were preaching. They claimed that Christ had been elevated to whatever position that He was at. But the term literally implies the idea that He always was, always is, and always will be the full manifestation and revelation of the person of God to humanity. Christ is, is not just a great teacher, but he is literally as much God as God the Father or as God the Holy Spirit. We have as our Savior, not some lesser deity, not someone in a pecking order, but we have God himself as our Savior. Well, Paul's had us walking amongst the stars. <laughs> he's, he's, had us, he's taken us from creation, and then in verse 20, he takes us to Calvary. He says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross... By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. He takes us from lofty heights to lowly humiliation. He takes us from the stars to the sacrifice, from creation to Calvary. He takes us from glory to Golgotha and he reminds us that all of this was accomplished by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses an interesting term. It's the term reconciled reconciliation. Now, Paul, in other places, particularly in, I believe, 2 Corinthians, uh, speaks at length about this doctrine of reconciliation. But to reconcile something means very simply to bring it home or to bring it to its proper place. And in Scripture, God is never described as being reconciled to us. Rather, we are always described as being reconciled to God. And there's a very simple reason for that, because it wasn't him that moved. It was us. You've heard the old illustration. You probably heard it from a sermon from me. I think maybe our evangelists even told it. You know, us preachers, I guess we need to get new illustrations. But of the old couple riding in the bin seat pickup truck that they had had ever since they was dating. And the old lady, she looks over at her husband who's sitting all the way across the cab. <laughs> he says, you know, what happened to us? Years ago, we used to sit snuggled up in the middle seat, and wanting, you couldn't have fit a piece of paper between us. We was holding hands, and we was cuddled up, and we used to always ride like it. didn't matter if we was going down to the store for a jug of milk. That was how we were. We was just always right there, just stuck together like glue. And he looks over in his casual way. He says, well, honey, I'm not the one that moved. <laughs> Reconciliation is us scooting as humanity being scooted back to the middle seat. A good illustration of this is the prodigal son. The prodigal uh, demands his father's inheritance. He takes a third of his father's goods. You say, why a third? Because the elder brother would have had the first two portions. So he takes a third of his father's goods and he goes into the far country and he squanders it all. He finds himself feeding a, a Gentile man's hogs. And, you know, I've heard preachers say my whole life, he he started to eat what the hogs ate. But that's not what your Bible says. It says he fain would have filled his belly with the husk which the swine did eat. Uh, his master didn't even love him enough to give him hog slop. He had to sit there and watch the hogs eat and be hungry. About and if you've ever been around hogs, you know you'd have to be awful hungry to look at what they're eating and to want any of it. And there in the midst of his despair, there where sin had had brought him to, He comes to himself and he thinks of his father at home. And he says, you know, my father's servants are in better shape than I am. They have enough to eat, to spare, and I perish with hunger. He says, I'll go home to my father. And I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And as he travels back home, as he begins to walk up the driveway, he sees a figure running with arms outstretched towards him. And as this figure comes into clear view, he sees it's none but his father who the Bible says was waiting for him. And he ran, and he fell upon his neck, and he kissed him, and he hugged him, and he called for the best ring, and the best robe, and the best shoes. And he called for the fatted calf to be slain. And this is why, he said, because my son that was dead is now alive. My son that was lost is now found. Let's make merry. That's a beautiful picture of what happens when a sinner comes to know Christ. It's also a beautiful picture of what happens when a backslider repents and comes home to God. The the key, the emphasis, the principle of that narrative is that a reconciliation has taken place. We have three basic thoughts given here. First, the means of our reconciliation. How did he reconcile us, having made peace through the blood of his cross? We were at odds with the Lord because sin had corrupted our nature. Mankind in the garden chose to sin, chose to live in disobedience, and it corrupted mankind's nature, his character, his personhood. And for many, many long generations, mankind continued to spiral worse and worse into depravity. Even sort of a global restart through a universal flood could not stem the march of mankind's depravity. He had trespassed against God. He had alienated himself from his creator. One would have imagined had God been like you or me, he would have probably declared war on mankind's corrupt behavior. But instead, God devised a plan of peace. And that plan was this. Though his holiness had been trespassed upon, though his righteousness had been offended and besmirched, he chose to robe himself in flesh, walk amongst men, live a perfect life, and then step into their place on Calvary that he might die for them that their sin might be upon him and his righteousness might be placed upon them. I don't know that I can... In fact, I know I can't give to this verse the description that it's due. But one commentator said this, that in Calvary, we have an example of man's greatest tragedy in his dealings with God. And at the same time, we have an illustration of God's greatest triumph in his dealings with man. In other words, we find... Man at his most brutal and God at his most benevolent. The means of reconciliation was the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, how must this have flown in the face of these Gnostics that proclaimed that they didn't even have sin? Well, if you didn't have sin, what did you need a Savior for? That's why the preaching of the cross is an offense to them that perish. That's why modernists and, and, and Bible deniers and liberals work uh, night and day, try to take the blood out of our Bible. It's why it's so imperative that we know what we believe and why we stick close to the inerrancy and inspired, infallible nature of the Word of God. They're trying to rip the blood out of every page of this King James Bible. Why is that? Because it offends their sense of self-righteousness. Because every time the sacrificial death of Christ is mentioned in Scripture. It is a reminder. Just as in the Old Testament sacrifices, there is a remembrance made of sin every year. In the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is a remembrance of sin made every time the lost person hears the message of the cross of Calvary. And until their sins are placed under that blood, it's going to continue to sound the peal and the toll of the bell of their condemnation. Because of this, they hate the cross. But to us that believe, He's precious. He's precious. He's the means of our reconciliation. Not only that, but we see the measure of our reconciliation. What was reconciled or where were things reconciled? It says, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. We find that the reconciliation that's described here, it extends to two realms, to heaven and to earth. There are three realms upon which God holds total sway and governance. Heaven, earth, and hell. Hell will never experience the reconciliation of God. But heaven and earth will experience the reconciliation of God. All three. And when we speak of heaven, we're not speaking of the the heaven where God dwells, but we're speaking of of the heavens, meaning the firmament, because the Bible describes Satan as the prince, the power of the air. The heavens were defiled by his sin. In fact, sin began. One commentator, I thought this was funny, said sin began in outer space. It began in the heavens. Where Lucifer said, I will ascend unto the most high. I will be like God. I will take that authority and position unto myself. He was the prince, the power of the air. And the earth, of course, has been defiled by man's iniquity. Both of these things are going to be reconciled. And that's why the Bible says that God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. It extends to two realms. But notice verse 21. It extends to total rebels. It says in you. Who's you? Me and you, that's who you is. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. What a beautiful statement. It It reminds us that mankind in and of himself is completely alienated from God. He's mentally alienated. Our consciousness bends away from God to defilement and to error. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to remember something you ought not have in your mind and how tough it is to remember the truths of Scripture and the inerrancy of the Word of God, portions of Scripture, principles of biblical truth? Our minds have been alienated from the Lord in such a way that man's natural propensity is to think contrary to the way God thinks. His thoughts, he declared, are not our thoughts. His ways are not our Ways. Our minds have been alienated. This is the reason that that man cannot reason himself to righteousness. And philosophy can always and will forever come up bankrupt to answer man's sin problem. Because even the tool that we use, the utensil we use to observe the world around us and to reason and to try to find understanding is corrupted by sin. We are alienated from God. And until He creates in us the mind of Christ, we can't think like Christ does. We're mentally alienated and we're morally alienated. It says by wicked works, wicked works. Uh, We are morally bankrupt and depraved. Sin has produced in mankind an ugly visage. I found this uh, story in one of the commentators. And man, I thought this was good. I'd never heard this before. But the story goes that Leonardo da Vinci, when he committed to paint his masterpiece, the Lord's Supper for the Last Supper, that... uh, he had completed most of his painting, but he spent months and months and months trying to find someone that could serve as a model for Jesus Christ. And he searched all over Italy looking for someone that he felt embodied the, the innocence and the compassion and the meekness of the Lord. Finally, he found a young man by the name of Pietro Bandolini, and uh, this young man, he found him singing in the choirs at Rome, and he just expressed perfectly the image of the Savior. And so he gets this young man and he models him and he paints in the face of Christ. Well, he continued on with the painting and years passed by before he ever finished it. And the reason was because he struggled to find someone that embodied the image of Judas in the picture. And he wanted someone whose life and whose face just bore the marks of sin. And as he was walking through the streets one day, he finds a tramp, a beggar on the side of the street who just looked exactly like he would have imagined Judas looking. And he grabs the man and he hires him for a few hours and he says, come in and sit down. And he paints the face of Judas model after this man. And as he's given the man his money and he's getting ready to leave, he says, by the way, what is your name? And he says, my name is Pietro Bandolini. It was the same young man from years earlier. The only difference is that young man had gone out and gotten into sin and sin had left indelible marks and irreversible scars upon his life, and he bore the image of hard living. Man, as a race, humanity, bears upon it the marks of wicked works and of sin and of immorality. But in the death of Jesus Christ, all those things are reconciled. Verse number 22, the Bible says... Yet now if you reconcile, verse 21, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. What is the meaning of our reconciliation? What does it produce in us? We know that sin produces scars and alienation as it had in that young Italian man. But what does reconciliation produce in us? It produces three things, a holy life, an unblameable life and an unreprovable life. Not necessarily in our sight, but notice how specific the Bible is in his sight. In whose? In God's sight. You can imagine Satan ascending into the presence of God, wearing proudly his title as the accuser of the brethren. And he knows that if he speaks a single lie in the ears of God, that there's no way to stand because he's speaking to truth in essence. And so he has to devise some means, some way to try to cast down God's beloved creature and creation in his eyes. And so he decides, I don't have to lie and just tell the truth. And he begins by pointing to the filthiness of mankind, how wicked he is, how every single thought that he has is bent towards unrighteousness and and, and vile things and lewd things. But this God replies, you know, when I look, I see only holiness for all that filthiness that you spoke of was born by my son on Calvary. Satan says, well, I guess that won't work. Maybe I can just point to his faults. Every single time that he tries to step out in faith and do something for you, he fails. Every time he commits to be faithful, he always strays and and, and goes the wrong way. Look at all the faults that he has. the, the, The father looks at him and says, I'm sorry. All that I see is that he's unblameable. That every one of those mistakes that you're talking about has already been reconciled and answered for in the perfect life of my son. And he says, well, maybe I'll just list some facts about what he's done in his life. And he goes down through and describes every time we've broken God's law, every time that we've trespassed his holiness. And all these things, God can only answer back and say, you know, in all these, he's unreprovable for Christ has borne them all on Calvary. What does reconciliation produce? It puts us in a right position with God, It deals, it answers to all of those things that the accuser would seek to lodge against us. Well, notice the third thing. We'll move through this quickly. But look down at verse number 23. The Bible says this. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. We find the demands of Christ in these last few verses in this chapter. You know, surely these great truths that we've been talking about demand a response from us. And certainly Christ has certain demands that he placed upon our life. Let me point you first off to what seems to be a conditional clause. Paul says, if. Now, there's something interesting about that little word, if. You know, we once had a president that got away with all kinds of wickedness by... Uh, asking people what the definition of is is, amen? So two little words, two little letters can, can go a long way. The word if, uh, there, there's a lot to it. It can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes the word if can cast doubt upon something. Sometimes the word if can mean, well, if you do this, I'll do that. It can be truly conditional. But there's other times in the Bible that the term if is not uh, given as being conditional, but indicative. Uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ makes this statement now, if Christ be preached, Paul makes this statement. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that the dead rise not? What's he saying? Well, he's saying, well, obviously Christ is preached that he rose from the dead. It's a very cornerstone of our message. So the term if there is not uh, something that is conditional, but it's indicative. It's saying if it be so, and we know that it is. And what Paul is saying here in verse 23, when he says, if ye continue in the faith, is it's almost like after he says that he looks over the top of his glasses and says, and I know you will. I know you will. If you're saved by the grace of God, if you're bought by the blood of Christ, if you're indwelt by the spirit of God. If you continue in the faith, and I know you will, because if you're all those other things, you will continue in the faith. What he's saying is this, if you do, and I trust that you will. It is a statement of confidence and of assurance. So what he is saying is this, that God expects a certain degree of loyalty out of us for Him. He gives five things in which we ought to be loyal. He describes a definite loyalty, and that's what's implied here. There should be no question in our mind that we're going to remain loyal to the Lord. Now, the degree to which we can be consecrated to Him and be devoted to Him... Grappling with and and reconciling with the infirmity of the flesh, I understand. But there ought to be no question in our mind that we're not going to be moved away from the faith. That we've made our decision, that we've placed our faith in Him, that we're not going anywhere. It carries with it the idea of confidence and assurance. Look at the next phrase. We have a statement that implies a deepening loyalty. He says grounded and settled. Uh, The term grounded has the idea of a foundation and the term settled carries the idea with it of taking a seat. Taking a seat. Uh, some of you are at the place in life where taking a seat is a commitment. Somebody say amen to that. When you decide it's time to sit down, you know you're going to be in it for the long haul. Amen. And this jumping up. Uh, well, this word has the idea of taking a seat, of settling in. And it describes this deepening loyalty that as believers in response to all these things, we should commit that we're not going to be carried about and tossed about with every weight. And uh, and every wind and slide of doctrine He describes a determined loyalty He says, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel That has the idea of being shifting Constantly shifted to one side or another Almost like being moved out of the way Every time me and my wife go shopping We went did some shopping today Shocks it if I go with her grocery shopping And uh, I can't handle being in grocery stores anymore Um, I just, and I guess a lot of it is because I, 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 in some ways I interact with people a lot, but in other ways I'm a bit of a hermit and a recluse. I mean, if I can stay in my driveway, I stay in my driveway. And when I get out in public and I'm around people, I'll be walking through. I mean, I I really, I have to get my flesh under control because there's times I want to push somebody out of the way if I'm going through a grocery store and they're in front of me and they won't move. Because I'm thinking, you ain't the only person in this grocery store. I'm sorry. And what I want to do is I want to just shift them out of the way. Just get up and just kind of shove them out of the way. I want them to be moved away from the center of the aisle because I have to get those graham crackers that they're standing in front of. This is, I think, in some ways, what Paul is saying. He's saying always shifted to this side or to that side. Moved this way or that way. So that's not how we ought to be. We ought to be determined. We ought to be settled. We're walking with Christ. We may, we may have faults. We, we may fail at times. We may have mistakes. We may stumble. But we're committed that we're going to get back up and we're going to keep going and we're not going to turn our back and we're not going to walk away. We may fail a thousand times, but that'll just be a thousand and one times that we're going to get back up because we're not going to be shifted to the side by the pressures of life or the persecution of others or by the assault of Satan. It's a determined loyalty. It's a dispensational loyalty. He says, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Now, a lot of people have taken this verse and and tried to draw a line out and say that this means that in Paul's day, every person... On the earth had heard the gospel. I don't believe that. Uh, I I don't believe that because historically that's just simply not the case. There there are people today that have never heard the gospel. Uh, And I don't just mean of this generation. I mean there are nations. There are people groups that have never heard the gospel today. So what then could it be saying? Well I think it's saying this. That every type of creature the gospel is given to. Not just Jews but Jews and Gentiles. Every person is a recipient of The gospel, our loyalty ought to be such as to carry out God's great commission towards this world. Then he describes a doctrinal loyalty that we ought to have. He says, where have I, Paul, and made a minister? In other words, he's saying, that's the gospel I'm talking about. Not the gospel these Gnostics are preaching, but the gospel that I have preached unto you, you need to stay true to it. You need to stay firm upon it. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. Interesting last few verses here. Verse 24. He speaks of himself and he says of himself who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So this is your outline thought. We're to be loyal to Christ, but we're to be living for him as well. Verse 24 has always been a puzzling verse to me, but I do think that we've probably got a little bit of a handle on it tonight. Paul says that he has identified himself with the cross of Christ. I've always wondered about that verse because it says that the sufferings of Christ for us, for the church, for his body, are behind. And Paul says that he's trying to fill up those sufferings. I've always thought, does that mean that the sufferings of Christ were not sufficient or complete? Does that mean when Christ said it is finished, he didn't mean it was finished? But I'm reminded of this, that there are two ways in which Christ has suffered for us. He suffered for our sins. That's redemptive suffering. But also the Bible says that we have not in high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So he suffered for our sins, but he also suffers, present tense, uh, 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 perpetual tense, perspective, he suffers with his saints. And I think that, that responsive suffering is what Paul's talking about. He's not saying Christ didn't suffer enough on Calvary, but he's saying even now Christ suffers with us when we suffer and he says, I've committed to suffer along with his saints and to bear a part of that. If that be my lot in life, if suffering be what God's providential plan has for me. And he says, I'm committed to identify with his cross, to take my place and to suffer along with others. And then he identified with the church. Verse 25, he speaks of the ministry of the church. He says, "Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. That word, minister, is uh, it denotes a servant or a deacon. It's a truly servant's position, and not a minister in the sense of someone that is is domineering, but a minister in uh, in the sense of someone that is serving. Christ used that term in Matthew twenty twenty eight when he said, "The Son of Man is come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." Christ said, "I, I haven't come to lord. I've come to love. I, I, I've not come to master. I've come to minister." I've not come to to wield sovereignty over, but I have come to work and to serve others. And Paul says, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to serve others around me. He speaks of its mystery. Verse number 26, he says, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations that now is made manifest to his saints. A mystery in the New Testament does not mean something that cannot be known, but rather what it means is something that was not known in the Old Testament. It was a mystery to them, but now has been made known unto us. It is a revealed secret, something that has been exposed to the light of New Testament uh, truth and revelation. And Paul speaks about a lot of mysteries about the Pauline epistles and others do, you know, uh, talks about the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of the fullness of the Gentiles, the mystery of godliness. Uh, in other words, these are things that Old Testament Christians didn't know and couldn't know, but that we New Testament Christians know. Notice its message, verse number 27. He says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm just going to say it like one commentator said it, but the message of the church is Christ in you. Christ in you. This is the message. He who gave his life for us now abides in us, that he might give his life to us and share it with us. Or we might say it this way. He who died as me now lives in me. Paul says that's the message that I'm bringing Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he speaks of the mission of the church. This is basically twofold. Verse 28, it's reaching men for Christ, whom we preach warning. And he gives this three times warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This describes the threefold responsibility of the church to evangelize every man, to educate every man spiritually speaking, and to edify every man, to try to further them in their walk with Christ. Now how do we do this? Verse 29. "You've been awful patient with me tonight. Verse 29, we see reaching men through Christ, whereunto I also labor," Paul said, "Striving how according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, stop and think about the, the compendium of everything that Paul has said to you. Now, he's fighting these Gnostics, right? And these Gnostics believe that Jesus Christ is not God, but he's just a, a lower tier angel. They believe that God has no interaction with the material world. Everything material is wrong. They believe that they have no sin whatsoever, that sin is all subjective. They believe that they have special advanced revelation from God that no one else has. And Paul just shows up and reigns all over their parade. And he says, I'm here to tell you that Christ is not just an angel. In fact, he's God. He's the creator. He's God in the flesh who revealed the person and power and purposes of God to us. And not only are you a a sinner, but he is the Savior. And you know you're a sinner because he is a Savior. And he's made peace through his cross. And he has reconciled us unto himself. And he has revealed unto us the mystery of the church. He's revealed it to all of us, not just to some of us, but to all of us. And he is now personally invested and involved with humanity. He's not afraid of the material. He's working with and in the material as he works in us. Paul would say, you want the truth about Christ? That's the truth about Christ.